Hello, and welcome to the Unwalkable podcast. I am your host, Unwalkable. Today, we have a very special show for you. Joining me today is Dr. James Lindsay, owner and CEO, president of newdiscourses.com, and the goat of Unwoke, if you will, the guy who started it all in terms of the knowledge base that we have to fight radical identity Marxism in our country, in our schools, and our organizations. We will take you through everything from queer theory, critical race theory, DEI, how that intersects with school, with school choice, and the homelessness issue to defund the police. James is a wealth of knowledge, and if you listen to any of my podcasts, this is the one to listen to. So if you enjoy the content that I'm bringing you, please like and subscribe to my channel so I can continue to bring that to you. And we will continue to bring in guests, maybe not on par with James, but very near close. We're going to have lots of special guests for you soon. And lots of analysis on things that are happening in schools in Oklahoma and across the country. Thank you and enjoy this podcast with Dr. James Lindsay. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. We've known each other for a little while. I bug you a lot on Twitter and uh, finally, <laughs> and, uh, but that's the thing about James. I'll say this to everybody. He really is the guy that will, that is, that is in this for the, for the fight and he's in for, in it to make a difference. And it's not, you know, he, he makes a living doing this. And if you need somebody to talk, ask James to come and talk because you, there's nobody better, but he, he reaches out to us people on the ground and helps us out whenever he can. And, and, you know, coming on a show like this with, you know, I've got a 300 sub follower count right now, but he's more than willing to come out. And I appreciate that. I really do. So, um, so I just want to see, first question, what are you seeing across the country? What, what, what is uh, bringing you, uh, hope what's bringing you worry what's going well, on well it's kind of well, i am getting around i've been i've had the privilege in the last year and a half or so to go to 40 states um so we haven't made it to all of them but we're getting around uh and you know what i'm learning through this year is that in a sense my hope i feel like has been misplaced um, I had this kind of, I think, naive optimism about red states, uh, Republican-run states, and now I'm actually pretty pessimistic about them. Uh, before we started the the show, I said I think I'm black-pilled on red states. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's hard not to be black-pilled about blue states because, I mean, you start thinking of California, and you're like, eee. Um, But I went to Vermont, and that was actually kind of encouraging um, that's a very blue state. I think that the kind of really big city-based states, you know, California, New York, are a little bit um, icky. But if you start looking at some of these other states, New Jersey, for example, Vermont, there's actually more kind of hope going on there than you think. And I would say that they are secretly more purple than their electoral maps tend to show or have tended to show. Um, a governor's race in, in New Jersey was very close actually, mm -hmm. between not just a Democrat and a Republican, but a constitutional Republican. Uh, I mean, it was down to the down you to like, like no money, right? I mean, it was yeah, like, it, yeah, like almost none. And it was like down to like, we have to recount these, you know, one at a time, almost it was so it was actually extraordinarily close. You know, we saw 
so-called solidly blue Virginia flipped back red. And so it was more purple than anybody thought. It's these states that I see that are more purple than people realize or that are outright purple. Florida was purple until we had Ron DeSantis. Now it's solidly red, um, yep. but red in a different way than the other ones. Mm-hmm. It's not, I don't know what to call it. Like I want to say, you know, people like in Oklahoma and Idaho and Utah are like, we're ruby red. Well, ruby is corundum. Corundum is a mineral with a Mohs hardness scale rating of over nine. It's not changing. Yeah. Like screw you, you you're the corruption is deep. The corruption is is deeply entrenched. I'm a Tennessean. I see it here. Tennessee's a weird case because the people in Tennessee are as based as people in this country get. Yeah. I honestly think that I'm proud of my own home state. Like I've been to your state, been to Oklahoma, mm-hmm. been to Idaho, been to Utah, all these kind of famously red states, been to Texas, been to Florida nowhere is based like Tennessee is based as far as the people go, but corrupt government. And yeah. you see this in these solidly red states. And it's really discouraging because what you'll see is this kind of stupid little game where they pass the legislation that looks like it achieves a thing and they put out their little press release and they get their applause, but there's a loophole in the legislation yeah. or, you know, there's a primary and somehow magically the rhino wins by unexpectedly large margins Mm -hmm. and it's like the same kinds of problems that everybody worries about seem to be plaguing red states and you don't actually see that the fight actually seems to be taking place in these purple and blue but secretly more purple than you realize states Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of like a big picture and it's kind of an interesting thought like do we start trying to divert resources to places like vermont do we, which is small and doesn't have a whole lot of representation, obviously, what do we do about Texas, which is big and needs all the help it can get? Um, it's an interesting kind of question. Uh, you know, Texas, of course, has its own corruption issues, but at the same time, it is putting up some fight, just mm-hmm. kind of dragging its feet. Like, it's the stereotypical American, you know, what, what is it from like World War one and two the americans drag their feet but then they show up and get the job done that's kind of what i think of as texas it's like come on come on it's like you're poking it with a stick do something you like yeah well and i stand up and 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 to hear you say that and we talked about this before but you know in terms of legislation and them passing things that you know have these giant loopholes i think the incentives are different you know but you see the same kind of you know we're, we're in California, they've, it's solidly blue and there's corruption there that helps keep it that way. Well, there is in, in red states, Oklahoma, and I'll just speak about Oklahoma is where I'm at, but there's, there's a level of good old boy, you know, kind of, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of corrupt tendency that keeps it red, at least in the in the sheen right but there's a lot of things a lot of different incentives you know going down to football and and you know we'll get into that later but it's like the incentives may be different but the kind of corruption level they're willing to uh they're willing to compromise on things that probably aren't best for what the state is going forward and really lend towards being a danger in the future is that yeah, the communists know how to buy these people. It's very simple. I mean, the the good old boy corruption being it, it, what that does is it keeps the same kind of circle of people in power, and that's a, its own problem. But the the reason that that's primarily a problem, besides the fact that these people tend not to have very strong spines in a lot of cases. Uh, but the bigger reason that that's actually a problem, so they won't fight like Ron DeSantis fights. They won't take mm-hmm. that risk. They won't you know, put it out there. They don't want to deal with the the headache of it or whatever. So that's one issue. But then they just want to keep good old sleepy 
you know, this is how it's always been. This is how it'll always be where red is red and everything's fine. But the thing is, is they know exactly how to buy those people. The, the, the communist operatives know exactly what offers to make. They know exactly which $300 million to offer Glenn Youngkin from Google to remake schools. Google doesn't give $300 million to Virginia to make schools more like uh, what Virginians need. It gives $300 million to schools to serve Google's interests. Then right. the same thing happened for a quarter of the price tag um, in Idaho recently, Brad Little signed off on a $75 million, uh, for schools thing from Google. If I've not mi mixed up my States, no, wait, well, sorry. That, that wasn't, it was, it was, Oklahoma. it was Oklahoma. Yeah, I get my, yeah. I get my super yeah, no. Sorry, Brad Little. It <laughs> was Kevin a, Stitt. Yes. It was Kevin Stitt who, who <laughs> went in for the 75 million from Google. And again, that's not, that's not representing the interests of Oklahomans. You're right. not going to lead to an educational system that educates Oklahoma students and Oklahoma values if Google is prov providing all of their the equipment. Now, this isn't necessarily the way that it is or would have to be. But the thing is, is we don't have, and Oklahoma hasn't taken the steps, whether it's Idaho or Utah or Tennessee or Texas, none of these states have taken the steps to ensure that there's extraordinarily robust data privacy before those kinds of things get implemented. If right. Google cannot data mine your children and they actually just want to provide hardware or even software, okie dokie, maybe these are deals worth pursuing. But mm -hmm. the thing is, is we don't have robust protection against data mining children. We don't know what Google's going to, we do know Google will collect that data. We don't know yeah. what these, what it's going to do. And we named Google, but Facebook, Apple, so we can indict Idaho. They're bringing in a gigantic meta center right outside of Boise. Um, Facebook, Apple, meta, you know, you name it. Um, these huge corporations that are making these kind of what look like too good to be true deals are making a too good to be true deal because they're getting something out of it. Right. And what are they getting? They're getting reams and reams and reams of data that if we're very cautious, we have to say, we don't even know for sure what they're going to do with that data. We have some ideas what they might do with that data, what they want to do with that data. They want to make social credit profiles of your children mm -hmm. so that your children are perfectly uh, locked into that system as they grow up. And so that they can be perfectly propagandized, both politically and commercially to behave as the say Google wants them to behave uh, without robust protections, though, these are not good deals. And these are the right. kinds of things, whether it's that, whether it's, oh, well, we want Brigham Young to be in the Pac-10. So we're going to put a DEI office in the university or at Liberty University, which isn't a state school, of course, well, neither is Brigham Young, but um, at Liberty University, well, we want to be able to accept federally underwritten student loan money so students can come here. Oh, you have to have a DEI office or we won't give it. And the thing is, is nobody, or whether it's like Oklahoma wants to be a part of the SEC. Well, you got to let boys play on the girls team if that's going to be for the SEC. And nobody's willing to cut ties and say, listen, it's like Jesse Kelly. You know, I don't know if you know who Jesse Kelly yes. is. I would assume mm -hmm. you do. Yes. You know, I don't know what to call him. I hate to call anybody a pundit, but he's a very effective communicator. He has mm -hmm. a show, the Jesse Kelly show. He's very tall, apparently. Yeah, he's a Marine, he definitely not in the Army or the Navy, whatever mm -hmm. that implies. If you know Jesse <laughs> Kelly, you, you can laugh. Um, yeah. But Jesse Kelly, you know, kind of brings this up all the time. And it's that, you know, if you're not, if you're not willing to, like he says, Republicans won't even stop watching NFL, which is just ramming 
neo-Marxist social justice down your throat constantly, game after game after game. Right. You won't even you won't even turn off the football game for a couple of years and boycott that. Luckily, we're apparently we've launched a, a you know metaphorical nuclear missile straight into the side of Disney, but yeah. um, you won't even put away your football game. So. Well, SEC, Oklahoma football, it's a big deal for Oklahomans. It's a big deal. We got to do whatever the SEC wants. No, you freaking don't. No, you don't. You stand up for Oklahomans first. It's right. like the same analogy I give with, with the kids in schools. People are like, what do you do with the kids in schools? The schools are a disaster, all this woke stuff. And I'm like, the school's on fire. Imagine the school. I actually, I'm, I'm not even going to like lie. I didn't make this up. I stole this from somebody who said it at a talk and I was taking, he was on a panel and I was just like, this is amazing. The school's on fire. What are you going to do? You're going to get your kid out of the school first. The plane's going down or no, it's got an oxygen thing. Like the seal broke and the cabin depressurized. What do you do? Put your mask on before you help others protect Oklahoma citizens before you start trying to make a sweetheart deal with the sec Oklahoma football. That's become a perverted poisonous thing is not Oklahoma football that Oklahomans want or deserve. And so you have to make these hard decisions to give the finger to these people to make it so, well, maybe the SEC has to think twice. Maybe Oklahoma should have enough pride in itself to say, well, damn, maybe the SEC doesn't want to play by our conditions. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're missing out on what Oklahoma brings to the table. And if more people would do that, if more organizations and political leaders and university leaders would step up and say, no, wait a minute, we're not going to pollute the thing with your with your your uh, bundled up corrupt offer and ruin it for our, our people or for whatever it serves, then we'd be in a much different position. But no, they see they know that these kind of like big establishment guys who know the game, they know where the money goes, they know how the money flows, they know what money matters. There's all playing about the big money. Where does the big money move? Nobody's willing to just to buck up and say, you know what? I'm not making a deal with freaking Satan today. Right. I'm right. not taking your dirty money. I don't know if you saw that article. I know I'm rambling, but by Dan, no, go ahead. The, the bundling. I don't know if you saw that article by Dan McLaughlin about mm-hmm. framing out the social justice or woke, woke corporate woke or whatever he's calling mm-hmm. it, right? Woke corporatism as bundling, which is actually already regulated under antitrust behavior. So mm-hmm. bundling if I understood this correctly, I'm not a finance guy or whatever. I'm not a corporate lawyer. So let's not bundling is when you basically, it only really works when you kind of have a monopoly on a situation, but, but what bundling is, is which is why it's subject to antitrust legislation. Bundling is when people want to buy X from you, but you only sell X bundled to Y. So you have two products. Maybe it's, you know, you want, I'm trying to think of some normal thing that you might want to go buy. Maybe you want to buy, I don't know, eggs, but in order to buy eggs, you also have to buy say methamphetamine or something like that. They only sell <laughs> eggs with a box that, with a bottle of methamphetamine attached to it or something like, I mean, obviously an exaggeration, right, right? They only sell eggs along with something that you maybe don't want. Um, maybe it's like, a bag of garbage or something like that. And so the only you want eggs, and the only way you can get eggs is by also purchasing, paying for not just the eggs, but also the bag of garbage. And this is called bundling. And it only works if there's a monopoly, because obviously, if there's no monopoly, if I try to sell eggs bundled to a bag of garbage and say, you can only have my eggs, if you buy a bag of garbage, and you're like, I'll just sell you eggs. 
Yeah. You know, you, no right. garbage here. Like, right. obviously, I'm just going to get undercut. But if you have some form of a monopoly, whether like with Disney, it's a cultural monopoly as a status icon. They, I love Dollywood, but it's not Disney. Right. I don't yeah, love Disney. In fact, I don't even really like Disney. I haven't really liked Disney in very many years, regardless of these politics. I thought Dollywood was better, but uh, growing up as an East Tennessean, of course I would. But um, mm -hmm. the thing is, is you can't get the Disney product at Dollywood. You can't get the Disney product at Bush Gardens. <laughs> you right. can't get the Disney product at Six Flags. It's just not there. So if Disney is like, well, we're going to sell you a whole bunch of friggin' grooming of your children. And if you want the Disney product, you've got to buy a bunch of grooming of your children too. Now they've got a bundling problem. And if we think of it that way, the SEC is like, hey, Oklahoma, look how good it would be if you were in the SEC. More football money, more TV time, more blah, 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 all these benefits, yada, 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 bigger conference, mm -hmm. more exciting. Big time for big, big deal for Oklahoma. They sell it as a big deal for Oklahoma. But by the way, you got to have a DEI office at your university and you're going to have to let women uh, sports get wrecked by biological males. Make sure the legislation reflects that. That's bundling. Yeah, your people want the SEC stuff, mm -hmm. but they don't want the string that's tied to it. People yeah. want the Google money for education, but they don't want the data mining that's bundled to it. People want the federal education money that supports children in their educations, but they don't want the freaking federal government strings that come attached to it. This is the game that they play anywhere. There's a gigantic, almost monopolistic or gigantic pot of gold. They uh, attach a bunch of strings to it. And what you see is these kind of um, whether it's because they're corrupt in some cases, this may be the case, whether it's because they just think this is the game and you play the game the way you play the game whatever, whether they're ignorant or naive, whether they're weak, whatever it is, but these solidly red in safe red situation states just cave to this crap over and over and over again. So you have Idaho selling out its mineral resources and its natural resources to whatever gigantic corporate conglomerate, and it's not benefiting Idaho, uh, just a handful of elites in Idaho who are making the deals. Right. Utah is naming itself the cradle of the fourth industrial revolution in America, <laughs> Utah, Ruby red, Utah with Mitt Romney with spec Spencer <laughs> Cox, governor Spencer Cox, he, him announcing his pronouns oh um, coming out and saying that the fact of Utah being at the crossroads of the West, both in physical infrastructure with the roads and the railroads, but also in terms of digital infrastructure, some of the largest internet hubs are in Utah. Salt Lake City, as a matter of fact. So they're going to sell that out and make it the cradle of Klaus Schwab's Fourth Industrial Revolution program. Like, what in the hell are these people doing? Yeah, and it's just, I thought, so the, this is a very circuitous way to get to the, the question, the answer to the question you asked. A year ago, I thought, well, we're going to get some red states to stand up. Mm -hmm. And they're going to join with Florida, which is the only red state that's really standing up, and Texas, which is kind of standing up. And we're going to be able to mount an effective 10th Amendment style resistance. And no, we're not, because the red states aren't going to be the ones that do it. Florida wasn't red. Yeah. Florida wasn't red. And now we got a decent leader in there, and it's become very red because of the good leadership. And so I'm now looking, where are the states that are purple or secretly purple? And how do we use the fact that people there will actually take a risk on a possible Ron DeSantis character who will stand up and fight because the entrenched cronies in the red states aren't going to do it. And I've That's just right. given up on them. I have literally just given up on them. I spent a lot of time personally, physically, I flew my ass to Oklahoma and spent a lot of time on the ground with people there. And I'm like, Oklahoma's basically a waste of my time now. 
yeah. it's just a waste of my time. Well, and I look over at uh, Idaho and I'm looking at what's going on there. And I'm like, I've gone there multiple times. And I'm like, it's just a waste of my time. I like going there. I like going both states. It's my two favorite states to visit, honestly. And I'm just like, waste of my time. I go to Vermont and I come back. And I'm like, holy shit, we can change this country. Vermont, yeah. shaming Oklahoma, shaming Idaho in terms of what might be possible in this country. Well, I, I and I, I, you, you touched on a bunch of things that are just like, yes, yes. And, and yeah, we've talked about some of these things, but I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't hit this because uh, it might be the third rail, but school choice. So uh, I think that school choice has a lot of merit to it. Um, but Oklahoma has embraced this Jeb Bush endorsed, you know, I mean, he's going and doing equity, you know, conferences and things like that. And when, when you talk about bundling, so I've heard a lot of uh, opposition to school choice, whether it comes to vouchers or just the, the government being, you know, the federal government being uh, connected to it. But something I don't hear them talking about often is, okay, you're bringing in Google, you're bringing in this, you know, this kind of woke battery company, you're bringing in these big money. And when you talk about school vouchers, they're going to have boards that sit, you know, and they're going to control the curriculum of these schools. You won't be able to elect them. You won't be able to do anything like that. And, and so you have no real oversight and your only oversight is to vote with your feet. Well, if they've got their hand in most all of the private schools or, you know, that will end up being school vouchered school choice schools, that presents a very real and present danger when you have Google just implanting itself in the middle of your state and saying, hey, we'll give you all iPads and or, you know, whatever the equivalent for Google is. And and, you know, we'll run all of your data for the state. And, you know, that's fine. And I think what Ron DeSantis has done that has differentiated is he's, he's shown with Disney he's willing to go to the corporate end of things and say, nope, not in my state. Oklahoma is much different. You know, when it came to COVID, Governor Stitt did not, he, he made it very clear, I'm not going to tell them whether they can do masking, I'm not going to tell them whether they can do vax mandates and all things like that. And so my, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on school choice in that frame, because I think there are some merits to it, but only if you have a DeSantis type person that's willing to say, okay, you, you can bring your company into my state, but you're going to follow my state's values. And if you don't, there are going to be consequences for that. It doesn't seem that most red states are willing to do that because they're thirsty for that kind of big money, big corporate uh, entity in their state to bring you know revenue. And they say, you know, a rising tide will raise all ships. Right. But yeah. what if the tide is, is, you know, Marxist red, you know, Soviet red, what happens then? So I, I'd yeah. like to know your thoughts on that. I mean, you know, that my thoughts are, are actually really similar to yours. I, maybe the audience wouldn't know that, but you do. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I actually, you know, I did a podcast. I've got this new series. I'm doing new discourses bullets that I put out on the new discourses podcast platform where they're like, the original rule is they're going to be 10 minutes, 12 minutes as a hard stop, you know, around 10 minutes each with 12 minutes. As, and then I had to do two that were 15 and I'm like, ah, crap. So now it's 15 minutes as a hard stop, but I'm trying to keep them around eight to 10 minutes or shorter. And I did one on the school choice trap. I do think that school choice is a valuable thing, but you can't, it, it's almost, you know what I almost think of when I look at this, I think of, so when Mao took over and the cultural revolution was proceeding, I don't know if you know about the Bihua campaign, the 100 Flowers campaign. 
So Mao put forth the 100 flowers, let 100 flowers bloom, we're going to have free speech, we're going to all speak up, blah, 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 blah. And for about, you know, several months or a year, he let everybody speak out freely. Mao is allowing free speech, blah, blah, blah. And all I did was make lists of the people who said the wrong stuff and killed all of them at the end of it. And that's kind of the thing. I feel like there's almost like a school choice 100 flowers campaign going on, which is, you know, oh, yeah, let's open up the market. We're going to flood them. We're going to create this ability to vote with your feet, blah, blah, blah. Like small communities are still only going to have like one or two schools, guys. Like mm -hmm. you get out into rural Oklahoma or whatever, there's still probably going to be one or two schools. There's not going to be a lot of choice. And if both of those schools are woke, there is no there is no choice. The choice can't solve the problem. Even in more metropolitan areas like Oklahoma City or New York City or something like that, if there's not any genuine competition in the market, you don't actually have a market. You have a captured market. And what I see is that without changing the accreditation pipeline, without changing this credentialing pipeline, without figuring out how to get around the um, federal and sometimes state government restrictions on what qualifies, which is a, kind of a different accreditation question, without changing a whole lot of things, without changing the big moneyed interests that have their other purposes. Like I'm really would be curious if a state just threw down the gauntlet and said, nope, there will be no data mining. We're going to have absolute data privacy in the state. You want to come in Google and manage our data. We'd love it. We'd love to do business with you. And at the end of every whatever period and at any point upon anybody's request, you have to delete all that data and show receipts that it's been been mm -hmm. deleted. And if it didn't, we can take you to court and sue for massive damages, et cetera. I'd love to see what Google would do in response to that. I bet you they'd pull their asses right out of that state because they are 0% interested in playing that game. And so unless you do have a Ron DeSantis who's willing to go play chicken with them on this, all you're doing is setting up a fake solution that's going to cause people to say, oh, we have school choice now. The problem is solved. The market will work it out. But there's not a market. A captured market's not a market. Mm -hmm. That's right. A captured market is not a market. It is the illusion of a market. And if you introduce school choice, the way that it's being written into a captured market, all you're doing is giving people the illusion of, of a cure that actually, in reality, makes it even less accountable to them. Mm -hmm. Whatever people want to say, going back to the founding and the progressive movement of the public schools as they are since 1918 or whatever, whatever people want to say about John Dewey and Vygotsky and all of these guys, whatever people want to say about, I guess, Robert Counts is another name, all these guys, the school reform and social reformers movement, whatever people want to say about all that stuff and the school. The, the fact of the matter is that over the course of the last century, a lot of public accountability is present in public schools. Mm -hmm. People can go start yelling at their school boards. They can start yelling at their state boards of, uh, of education. They can start yelling at their state school superintendents. And there's a lot of accountability there. You start winnowing this into small, and they will be small private schools that are community schools and so on based off of the WISC model, whole school, or what is it? Whole child, whole school, whole something. Yeah. Whole school, whole child, whole community. That's what it is. Yeah. WSCC. And so there's going to be all of these little private schools that all of a sudden your only oversight is going to be to leave. You can't even speak up. I spoke with some people in the private school networks in New York City who are struggling with this. And, you know, a lot of people are, are aware that there's a big mess there after kind of Paul Rossi broke that out mm -hmm. in the world a couple of years ago. And what I keep hearing from them is I want to speak up, but I can't. And you think, oh, because they'll target your kid. 
or they'll kick your kid out. No, they actually have contracts that say you can't speak up or we can sue you. You can't mm-hmm. tell what's happening in the school. So you you are if you aren't really thoughtful about how you're approaching school choice with all of those challenges directly in your sights, then you're just walking into a trap. It's yeah. a, it's it's a, it's what would be a solution that's been turned into a fake solution because it's a solution that only works in a genuine free market right. that you don't have. And like I said, in some places, even if we had a free market, accreditation pipeline fixed, licensure pipeline fixed, none of this weird shit from the departments of education, et cetera, even if you had that in these rural areas, you still are only going to have one or two schools. It can still create an effective, you know, not monopoly, but duopoly that doesn't solve the problem. Um, so other measures are def- desperately needed before school choice is going to be anything like a solution. I've talked about political things like we've got to open up what it means to accredit a school. There has to be more variety allowed in that. We have to open up what it means to light, who can license a teacher. Why on earth are we still abiding by the fact that people have to go through a de facto political indoctrination in Marxism in order to earn a teacher or administrator license in the United States of America, which is, by the way, not allowed because it's a public sector job, which, by the way, if it goes to a private sector, that is allowed. You lose that leverage again mm-hmm. with the school choice trap that people are going to walk into. So we talk about that. We don't. We haven't talked about breaking apart these unions and these organizations like of you know superintendents boards and all of this crap. NSBA, we, all that. Yeah, the NSBA. Yeah. So we talk about that. By the way, we just talked about these red states. Well, of course, there's these governor associations where they go and they. It's like the miniature World Economic Forum of Republican governors screwing up and selling out our country and the same thing's happening in schools well we're not talking about what do we do about that without fixing the teachers unions and these these corrupt boards and and organizations or again creating competition with other ones we aren't solving this problem we're just walking into a trap and Mm -hmm. school choice is going to be very popular it's going to pull very well it has an enormous everybody's spidey sense should be tingling because of how much money is behind the school choice lobby like who writes your checks why on earth there's so much money being dumped into this school choice lobby. I go to the lo- a lot of these events that are kind of conservative slash libertarian. I speak at a lot of these events. And man, oh, man, oh, man, there is a ton of establishment interest behind school choice. There's yeah. a ton. There's nothing that fires up kind of conservative and libertarian donor base more than we're just going to create this school choice thing. And it's like you listen to it, and I get it. And in a free market, it's correct. But mm-hmm. it's so naive the way that it's presented that they're not aware that the market's not free, right? Yeah. It's just not free. You don't right. have a free market. And so um, I think that all the things we just talked about, whether it's corporate, whether it's these unions, whether it's these associations, whether it's accreditation pipelines, whether it's certification pipelines, whether it's federal money uh, and the strings that come attached to it, like we're just not ready for school choice. Like right. none of it's, this is all fake. It's Order all, of operations is important. You know, yeah, it, if you want, if you want, like all that is like, like structural stuff, maybe we should focus on, as you often beat this drum, maybe we should focus on getting rid of DEI period before, like, let's just kill the woke at the root before we start screwing around with playing around at the branches. Right. Well, and here in Oklahoma, as you, I think you saw when you were here the couple of times is that. I don't know, there seems to be a concerted effort to protect that, especially at the university, because, you know, uh, higher ed in Oklahoma is the second biggest lobby at this point. And because of, you know, because of the Cowboys, because of the Sooners, 
they are going to hold that. And what well, ends for up a million happen- reasons, yeah. for a million reasons, all yeah. the big money in the world is tied up in DEI because mm-hmm. the DEI fits squarely in the middle. It's like 80% of the center of the S in ESG and everything money in the world is ESG right now. Yeah. Everything money in the world is ESG. That's teetering at the moment. Elon Musk has come out and like punched it in the eye. Even Jeff Bezos is kind of like, wait, now we're seeing people say, yeah, yeah, Vivek has put out an alternative. He's created an alternative um, investment firm Mm -hmm. called Strive Capital or something like that. Uh, We see big entities, you know, wait a minute, maybe we should include you know, oil and gas to a degree with an ESG, maybe ESG isn't delivering. We're starting to see this kind of like earthquake around ESG, but for the past decade, almost unbeknownst to the average citizen, and I guarantee fully beknownst to a large number of the political class, though I do run into that too. I've Mm -hmm. given talks in front of big political operatives, state legislators, state um, officials at different state levels, federal level, who said to me at the end of the, the talk, you know, I've heard that term ESG about twice before today. And all you did was talk about it like it's the biggest thing since sliced bread. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are naive to the fact. But the World Economic Forum, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, BlackRock and Vanguard, Larry Fink, all these huge weirdo corporate leaders, they are not naive to to ESG. They hijacked a corporate responsibility movement that was kind of national 20 years ago, people trying to figure out what to do with how to shape corporate responsibility as, as the business world changed, became a little more global, became a lot more digital, et cetera. And they're trying to figure out what corporate responsibility should look like. And ESG is the thing that it all coalesced on, which if it was based in reality and data, maybe it would be something, but it's not. It's based wholly in the ideology of a very small number of people who are jerking everything around. So why do you have to have a DEI department at OU? Because if OU is going to have its pensions managed by a fund that subscribes to ESG, it won't be accepted unless they have a full-blown, full-throated DEI office hiring hundreds upon hundreds of DEI officers in every department and doing the full commissar game, like literally installing their social, their new, their, their neo-communism into mm-hmm. the university architecture, or we won't manage your assets. Your pensions aren't going to be able to be uh, put into our funds. And so the levers are so big and so hard that, Honestly, I don't know what the solution to that is without attacking. Again, you go at the root. You can't go after ES. You can't go after DEI because of ESG. Fine, we're going to go after ESG. We're going to go right up the chain, and we're going to say that this is a freaking cartel. This is freaking racketeering. This is a felony to hold hostage university that can't even make its own administrative decisions, or else it's going to lose the ability to invest all of its employees' pensions. Like this is literally racketeering and you need to find somebody. I know Oklahoma has a pretty damn good attorney general right now who's willing to try to bring that up, who's willing Mm -hmm. to tend to take this fight. I mean, every time I hear, I've heard repeatedly from big time lawyers that every time somebody tries to pull a RICO case, everybody, the judges just laugh and nothing goes anywhere. So nobody will attempt them. But we have a massive global racketeering scam under ESG going on right now, and that's locked in DEI. And so mm-hmm. the protection isn't just about keeping into the to the SEC or like with Brigham Young getting into the PAC-10 or at liberty with being able to get those federal uh, loan dollars, which that should also be 
illegal. Mm-hmm. You have a you have to have a particular social program under a misinterpretation of civil rights law, a deliberate misinterpretation of civil rights law, in order to qualify to have federal student loan money by a bad reading of things like Title Seven and Title Nine and yeah. Title Six, like literally in an in, inappropriate reading of those things. And this, this is this is the kind of thing that, that these entities should be able to sue for and should be able to win on. But if they can't get rid of DEI because it's really about ESG and the, the bigger money is somewhere up above it, we've got to turn our guns and we've got to shoot the largest mortars that we can find at ESG. Um, right. We need to hold our public officials to account and make them speak up on ESG. It's not enough. There is not a single elected representative at the state or federal level in this country right now who shouldn't be held to account on what's your position on ESG investments. What is it? Why do you think this is okay? Why do you think it's okay to tie up so many people's pensions and the ability to have a pension in some crackpot scheme run by a relatively small number of people who are pushing an ideological interpretation of what environmentalism is, an ideological interpretation of what social responsibility looks like, and an ideological interpretation of what corporate governance looks like, which largely means hiring the people who enforce all of the other crap. Mm-hmm. That's good governance, right? Well, and uh, I want to I want to just say about ignorance because I think uh, th- there's a lot of uh, officials, especially in red states, where they're trying to bring in lots of money that that feign ignorance when it comes to ESG. But just for an example, Governor Stitz, you know, former company that he just divested from in 2019, has a perfect ESG score, a perfect ESG score. You don't get something like that without having a knowledge. You're not in mortgage. You're not in uh, finance without understand over the last 20 or 30 years without understanding what ESG is because it's yeah, been- ESG has been like big for at least a decade, like right. by that, that name. Uh, they were, the, the, there's, there's, you're, you're correct. There's no way to not know if you're directly connected to this. And so um the only ignorance that's possible is to be ignorant of the fact that it was being run by a small cabal that was hijacking right. what it means and narrowing the definition incrementally. That one could be ignorant too. But the idea that you'd not know that everything went this way, the ignorance would be, oh yeah, ESG, but I've always thought that was a good thing. Just like people often do, right. I think the, quite uh, legitimately yeah. with, with, well, no, SEL, social yeah. emotional learning. That's got its own complicated history. I don't actually... Th- I don't actually think that the history, it's weird. I think it was created under bad, bad pretenses. And then a actually beneficial thing was created using like people heard the name and like, oh yeah, it's not a bad idea. We can use that in good ways. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the terrible thing just kept developing. And then the terrible thing cannibalized all the other stuff and the uh, benefits that it was producing. I'm not quite sure. The history of SEL is really weird, but yeah. there are a lot of people out there to, to, to get back to the point who have heard of SEL in this idea that, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're going to meet with these kids who have these problems. We've identified that, the, you know, the, maybe they're going to grow up to be a school shooter. And like, maybe right. if we help these kids learn to manage their emotions and learn to manage the social circumstances that they're in, or even identify that this is a serious problem case that we need to do something different with through this, this intervention process done in private, done in therapeutically secure spaces, done uh, with licensed counselors and licensed uh, circumstances, then you can actually have a massive amount of benefit for kids who are struggling, who are frustrated, who have temper issues, who have problems at home, who are who are off kilter or whatever else. And so a lot of people know SEL as that. Mm-hmm. And it's not that. It's now transformative SEL that's being made into what they call systemic SEL, 
where it's been completely hijacked into transformative means Marxist. So it's literally neo-Marxist consciousness raising according to Paulo Freire's model. And it uses psychological tools that are wholly inappropriate, being applied in inappropriate contexts. And systemic means that it'll be injected to not into just um, every school, but every class, every classroom, every subject, every subject matter will be taught through that. And the same kind of things happen could be could be said to be going on with ignorance with ESG. That people mm-hmm. said, oh, yeah, that's just this new stupid model we measure corporate responsibility on. Uh, five, ten years ago, it was kind of a big deal. It was a new fad or whatever, but we all kind of went along with it. And maybe they don't know that Larry Fink has twisted the the nuts down to where now it's this, you know, we are the virus. And if we don't do everything to go to green energy like 10, 10 years ago, then in 12 years, we're all going to not exist. And the whole planet's going to die. Mass extinction event, extinction rebellion, freak out and act like a chicken in the road, whatever the hell that environmental lunacy is, this Malthusian lunacy. For people who don't know, you should go look up. Malthusian, which is the belief that the population is going to exceed the carrying capacity of the earth, and we're going to have a massive collapse of the entire population because we can't feed too many people, so we have to reduce the population desperately to to save humanity. It's that. It's literally like a climate death cult, and um, it's literally driving all of the environmental policy of the Biden administration, which will put heavy duty screws on states like Oklahoma that have lots of mm-hmm. oil and gas. So you can't get your permits to pump the oil and gas would bring oil and gas prices down right now and save the country because the Biden administration is locked into a climate death cult. That's not even real. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, you, you know, the, the fact that social isn't, let's be socially responsible, like maybe don't support, you know, genocides in China <laughs> Whether no way, but no, it's narrowed down into let's push a literally neo-communist version of social justice as hard as possible, indoctrinate, you know, program kids in it through cult thought reform. I mean, the whole thing right. is just corrupt as hell. Governance now, good governance now is freaking install corporate officers who make you comply with all this stuff so that you can check off all the boxes so that your, if it's a university, your pensions can be held by these big investment firms and their mutual funds and whatever else or index funds, blah, blah. So it's possible that, that Kevin Stitt knows that this is how he knows what ESG is and he knew Mm -hmm. how to play the game without knowing that it's become this wholly corrupt thing. But the action is not meeting. uh, If if he's ignorant, he's still ignorant. And this ignorance as of at least the past 12 months is inexcusable. Yeah. I know this shit. Everybody who's at the level of a governor should know this inside and out, upside and down. Especially when you've been here to tell them about it. <laughs> you know, what I, I mean, and that, that, you know, and, I you might know, have we, actually been there in person and might have actually mentioned it. You know, exactly. So, I want to, I want to, I want to just highlight something here because when you talk about the governance issue, what I'm noticing too, you know, Chris Rufo had done some work on homelessness and stuff back, you know, uh, before CRT and all that came up. Before you brought up all that information, and I'm finding that the intersection between the homelessness issue is really and and critical race theory DEI ESG is really succinct they're really embedded together because they use the homelessness issue um like say here in in Norman right and it always seems to start at least in red states at the university towns and this happened in Columbia Missouri back in 2015 because they did the whole thing where they you know it was it was Michael Brown 
you know, the move to the SEC, the, you know, um, what do they call it? Low cost housing developments. And, and then Amazon comes in and then, you know, it's all the same kind of order of operations. And what I'm seeing now, and I've been doing some research on the actual, you know, we've been seeing all of these uh, surveys going out to kids. You know, and they're coming from, you know, the school districts, which are obviously connected to, like in Norman, the city government and the city apparatus. And there's an actual, to get the funds for these low-cost housing developments to fix the homeless problem that just magically appeared in 2020, right about the time of defund the police. You know, we, we, we had some homeless in Norman, but not a bunch, but it just like, it's like they threw up a big flag that said, hey, we defunded the police. And then all of a sudden everybody came. And about that? Ended, yeah, it was, it's interesting. And, and, um, and, you know, we're the only city in, in Oklahoma that defunded the police. We got rid of that mayor. But here's the problem. They they have now ESG funded grants to build these low cost housing developments. And part of the reporting mechanisms that you have to do because to to continue getting the money it's not like you get all the money at once because you know of course you, know, you go through a process and you have to constantly report no well, the first bag of crack is free exactly and then and then you have to constantly report well i'm finding very uh interesting connections between the surveys that go out to schools through sel through these sel programs to try to you go that will ask questions about like what kind of medications are your parents taking you know what what uh are you trans are you know if you ask in a fifth grade are you trans or you how do you identify and and what's you your think sexual about suicide activity? do you yeah. think about suicide do you think like dozens of times a year they ask them if they're suicidal right and and that's leaning back and it seems to be the pipeline of reporting back to these institutions to get these ESG grants that the, they call it uh, community reporting. And that's so exactly to, what that is. That's yeah. And that's bought come, off a ton of the Republicans because you have these massive developments. So you're incentivizing them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then all of a sudden what happens, you know, boom, you've now changed the actual voter base of your city and you've created this moat around OU, you know, where it's this blue moat and then it just designed to just spread. And yeah. that's kind of what happened, I think, in California, because, you know, it wasn't night. Um, uh, George H.W. Bush won California in 1988. Reagan won California 84 and 80. You know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that these were more red places, but this kind of mechanism and they use, they actually called it ESG you know the the comprehensive set sex education mixed with all this in california they called it esg they've changed the name in some of the other places but it's that's it's so entangled and it's like how do we get either a desantis in there because you know to to knock some of these companies down knock down some of these incentives but i think people don't understand how embedded and embraided this is into your local community and that's oh, yeah. something yeah. i'm really trying to help people I mean, understand that's actually i mean i hate to be this kind of it sounds so weak but it turns out it's not i thought this through even in terms of like five element theory from chinese like art of war um it <laughs> turns too. out that this exposure is it, making this keep it continuing to expose this and point out how it works and to, to show people the magic trick is actually kind of key uh, that's of course the earlier stages then what you do have to do is you have to get the people out who are doing this um and you have to put in somebody like a ron DeSantis who's going to be able to look at this and cut through the bs and say no wait this is all 
a scam. Like I had this really interesting trip to Austin early this year. And everybody was like, oh my God, you're it's a beautiful city. There's such good stuff to do. It's so fun. The food, blah, blah, blah. It's real, but you are not going to believe the homeless. You got to be careful. Like basically like bring a knife, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, um, it's really like bad, especially downtown. And if you go up to what sixth street or whatever, Austin's got a famous like place up there. I actually went up there. Um, and when I got there, it was like, I saw like one tent and there was like no homeless people anywhere, like zero. And I was like, what the heck? And I went out to dinner with some guys who are locals that took me out. And um, they're like, yeah, they just changed the enforcement like last week. And they went out patrolling one night, the police did, and they actually arrested people who were sleeping on public private property. And they arrested a couple hundred or whatever, a few hundred, put them in jail for a night or two or whatever it adds up to. But literally within like two days, they all just left town. Turns out the homeless don't, st the homeless, it's not a, th there are multiple factors causing these problems, but you don't need to build low income housing to solve the homeless problem. The homeless problem is a lack of enforcement problem yep. that you're allowing people to sleep on public property who shouldn't be sleeping on public property. And if you just start rounding them up, they go elsewhere. Now, there's a big picture that, I mean, that's really kicking the can somewhere else, probably like Los Angeles or something, but um, the smaller picture problem is actually fairly easy to solve. If you're going to start looking at housing, rather than trying to build these, of course, it's very lucrative for the people who make the deals, but uh, instead of building these low-income developments and creating this, like you said, moat of a voter base who's on the handout train, who's being caught in the leftist cycle of dependency um, so that they'll vote for the leftists who keep them you know, getting free money, basically, and free places to live, instead of doing that, maybe you start taking steps to block um big corporate entities in the chinese government from buying a lot of your property within your your state or your municipality or your country in the united states period don't let blackrock buy 40 percent of the single single occupancy homes anywhere make it so that there's a maximum number of single occupancy homes that anybody can own in any given zone or maybe some zones are this way and some zones are that way there are actual solutions to those problems don't let the CCP buy all your freaking property. Why are yeah. you doing this? And then all of a sudden property costs start coming under control and so-called low income housing for people who actually are looking for actual housing, affordable housing actually starts to be able to manifest again because the market comes back right. to a healthy state. There are other things that can be done, but as far as the homeless problem, why is it, why would they all go to California? Is it because the weather is so good? Well, I mean, it's part of it. Sure. But it's also because they know they're not going to get institutionalized. Yep. Back when California was red, back when these things weren't happening, that we actually took a lot of the, the homeless, and it's very sad, are mentally ill. They're not yeah. well. Everybody who's encountered one knows this. Mm -hmm. They have dependency problems. There are, there are solutions to these problems that, yes, they generate other issues, but institutional solutions that we put these people in a in a we used to call them like drunk tanks, you know, put yeah. these people in a rehab facility. If you think that the rehab facility sucks maybe create a situation where they can compete for, for how good they are or something like that to, mm -hmm. to make better ones, put them in a, what we used to call an asylum, put them in the nut house. If they're crazy, treat them for the actual issues that they have and get them off of the streets. But no, like you said, it becomes just like the homeless issue becomes a weapon for the communist in virtually every way you can imagine. It mm -hmm. makes the streets more dangerous. It makes 
it demoralizes people. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to, to have to deal with it all the time. People just want to be able to live their lives. They don't want to be brought down. They don't want to have to be, as, as Lenin would have it, they don't want to be confronted with the contradictions, which that's what you're doing, is you're forcing people to see the contradictions. Um, it degrades communities. It demoralizes the people, like I said, but in it also rural, creates in rural areas. It, it it moves the people that would be in Norman out to the more rural parts. So Correct. that you, so, so you, I mean, not so only you, you just have you an influx out, of people coming in, but you just have people leaving. It's the same thing that happened with the right. Police. And then it creates all these political things. You can say, oh, we need this low income housing. Look at the white flight. Look at this. Look at that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not white flight. It's people with means leaving a situation that's being degraded by bad policy. Mm -hmm. And if those people have in the past been disproportionately white, or even if they're disproportionately white now, that doesn't have anything to do with it. It's not white right. people trying to get away from, from black homeless people. It's people with means to get away from the dangers of a big homeless problem using their means to get away from a big homeless problem. But it creates a political weapon for the communists that's just unfreaking believable. So of course they're going to encourage this, and of course they're going to use policies when they can uh, that become self-concentrating in areas that become bluer and bluer and bluer over time. And I don't know that there's any other way to deal with it than actually becoming kind of a hard ass. Yeah. Um, weaponized empathy is a concept I've been talking about for a while. The whole communist game, or almost the whole communist game, is one of weaponizing empathy. Make you care about some problem and then tell you that they've created, and then you have they have the only solution to it. And the way that you actually get past that is you say, I don't actually care about that. Yeah. The way that you talk about if, if Ricky Gervais makes another trans joke, a bunch of trans people are going to kill themselves. Okay, I don't give a shit. That turns out to be an answer. If yeah. they are, I hope they get the treatment that they need. I hope it doesn't happen. I really do. But it's not my responsibility to do a damn thing about it. Stop telling right. me it's my responsibility to live in somebody else's psychopathology. Yeah. If they're that mentally unwell, then somebody should be getting them the help that they need. And that help isn't enablement. It's not affirming. And it's not forcing people to play along, which doesn't actually satisfy. You know, I've got my phone over here. I was going to pick it up, but it's plugged in, so it won't go that far and show it. These devices, I, I identified this a long time ago, the depression loop is what I used to call it on social media. And I don't know that social media causes depression. We talk a lot about the relative privation. You see all these people living great lives and you feel like their life sucks. I don't think actually the phone necessarily, you can doom scroll your way right into some black pills. That's for sure. Yeah. But I don't think that the device, and if you do get outside and touch grass and go out in the sun, et cetera, you're in a better mood. If you deal with it, real people in real in person, you're in a better mood. But what I think is people get a little bit down mm -hmm. and they want to have kind of a social uplift and they go on social media because when you're a little bit down, it's tiring to do stuff. You don't want to yeah. get dressed up and go out. You don't right. want to like get on the phone and try to rally your friends who are going to be busy because they're all doing stuff, especially if they have kids or if they have busy jobs. You don't want to go through, if you're bummed out, you don't want to go through that. You actually, it's helpful and if you look at these places in the world where people live to be the longest, like the neighbors are just showing up and dragging you out. If you're down, you're not having to go recruit people to bring you up. And so this is a, an issue. But what you do is you end up on social media because it's easy social interaction or so you think. But it's not satisfying social interaction, right? Mm -hmm. And so you become more depressed because you had like fake social that didn't make you feel better. It right. you pretend you felt better for a little while and it makes you worse. And this is the same thing that's happening with everything we've just been talking about. It's 
you have this kind of fake solution that doesn't solve the problem that actually makes the problem worse. And then you just let it spiral. And the way that you break out of that with the phone is you just put the damn thing down. Yeah. The way that you break out of that with weaponized empathy is that you say, no more. I actually will not be made to care about this issue on your terms. I'll care about it the way I want to care about it, which might be to not care about it. That's my right as a individual to care about things on terms that I think are appropriate. That's our right, according even to the Sixth Circuit Court. I don't know if you saw that decision. I just, it's a couple of years old now. I just became aware of it um, when I was in Vermont a couple of weeks ago. This is the uh, case of Nick Merriweather, who is a professor at Shawnee State University or Shawnee State College. I don't know which one it is, but in, in Ohio anyway. And he had a trans student who is biologically male in his class. And the person raised his hand and said, whatever. And he has a kind of rule or heuristic in class where he calls people Mr. or Miss so-and-so or yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. He always uses the formal never would never call you never say, Hey, Mark, go ahead. Would say, you know, Mr. Owsley, go ahead. Yes, sir. Right. What would you yeah. like to say every single time? Right. And so this trans, I guess, um, male to female trans person raised his hand. Professor Merriweather said, yes, sir. Mm. And the trans person yeah. went friggin' berserk. He got in all kinds of trouble. Like the whole, everything that you would imagine, the, the, the student swore to get him fired, blah, 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 blah. And the whole thing got really bad and the administration got really bad. And he took it to court and he lost and he took it to the appeals court, the sixth circuit, and he won. Mm -hmm. So they end up paying him huge damages. The university does, gets his job back, the whole thing with all these new clarifications about what he can and cannot do. And the Sixth Circuit Court ruled, not only can he not be compelled to say somebody's pronouns or use their preferred gender identity, the reason he can't be compelled is because he can't be compelled to uphold gender ideology. Yeah, he can't be. It's his personal choice, how he wants to understand gender. He cannot be compelled to uphold an ideology of gender for anybody else for any other reason. And he, I agreed with him. We had a long conversation up there in Vermont. I agree with him. We're not helping people through what they call affirmative care. We're mm -hmm. actually enabling, which is the same problem that you see with the drug abuse problems that are in, in some of the problems or other problems associated with homelessness. This whole enabling leftist cycle of dependency communist thing doesn't actually help. So you have to break out of that. Well, don't you feel bad for how it might insult somebody a lot to have to hear the, you know, they really genuinely feel deep down, like they're this gender or that gender. And you have to, you don't want to hurt their feelings. Like, actually, no, I literally don't believe that gender works that way. And I'm not going to pretend I do. And if it hurts their feelings. And you can't require to, me to do it. And, and uh, to go, just go pound your, sand is all I right. kind of feel like. Well, well, and, and you, 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 you brought up weaponized empathy over and over again, but I think it's what weaponizes empathy. It's unreciprocated, right? Unreciprocated right. empathy is not a virtue. That's and, right. and that's, and you, I, you wrote on Twitter yesterday, you talked about, was it Darvo or, yeah, or Darvo. you know, deny yeah, attack, and, reverse the roles of victim and offender is it's right. an abuser tactic. It's well right. known. Yeah. And, but it is, I, I it is like B before. cluster B tactic. Right. And it seems to be just spreading, but it uses that. That was his expectation in the, in, in the situation you just said, it's that, okay, you walked into this class, the teacher's heuristic is Mr. Mrs. You know, last name, whatever it may be. And then it's immediate, you know, I've been offended. I don't have to give you any empathy. 
right? You have yeah. to give me all of yours. And that's manipulation, right? That, that is. is that yeah. Is and in fact, the, if I recall the correctly, I mean, I have to go back and look at the decision. It's actually worth reading. Mm -hmm. Um but go back and if I remember what he said about the, the the ruling correctly, it actually says that somebody being offended is it covers zero percent of the ground. Yeah. Like an individual's offense has literally nothing to do with having to affirm anything. Mm -hmm. And people actually, it's funny because like five years ago I was saying this and people were like, oh, are they getting <laughs> now? It's like people can kind of hear it. You don't have somebody being offended is it covers 0% of the ground to them being right. Right. It covers 0% of the ground to that, to what they're saying, having to be respected or, or cared about. You literally don't have to care. Well, you're no. going to create trans suicides. No, I'm not. A mentally ill person is going to kill themselves. And if it came down to me affirming them or not, like that's a lost cause, bro. That's mm -hmm. the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And yeah. so, no, I'm not causing that. They are causing that. And the entire system that tells them that they're entitled to that is causing that. And right. this is where that Darvo comes in. I'm not the one causing it. Your broken, stupid ideology is causing the destruction of psychology that's mm -hmm. leading to these kinds of things. And then you're trying to project that onto me. Mm -hmm. It's not my role. Right. I didn't make the person suffer that way. And you can say, what about the hegemony? Well, you know, partly, I don't really buy that argument. Secondly, I don't think it's my responsibility. Oh, hold on. To Just explain it. what you mean by hegem hegemony. Oh, hegemony, that there's this broad force of cultural expectation that generally benefits those who have the power to enforce it. So we create social rules that benefit the people who uh, that everybody has to abide by, but it turns out that they benefit the people who get to make the social rules. That's right. how Marxists for the last hundred years have thought about power is that it's in the Western countries anyway, so that it's ultimately hegemonic. And so yeah. the other side to this is, and, and this is where, where with the Marxists, this is going to get deep, we get all into their social constructivist thesis, that society creates a structure of social relations that condition, whether through material determinism or structural determinism, as it were, who you are, how you think, what your values are, what your life is like. It limits, as Marx would have it, your range of subjectivity so that you can't even imagine yourself in a situation that's, I would say, different, but they would say better mm -hmm. because you're being conditioned by the line of thought that's being impressed upon you by the people with power interjected into you. And I would say that what you see with the social constructivists, and I'm reading queer theory now, where it's the most obvious it is overwhelmingly obvious. Yeah. I'm doing a podcast series right now. It'll be out in a few weeks, I hope, reading through the first queer theory paper, which is called Thinking Sex by Gail Rubin from 1984, which is kind of a shocking paper. But as I read through queer theory, it's just abundantly clear that what they are skipping, these Marxist social constructivists, if you hear social construction, what that means is that which creates social relations that limit subjectivity, which means Marxism. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. Social construction means Marxism. Every single time, that's what it is. We use other terms in reality like conventional category, not social construction. Uh, so anyway, you read this though, and what they miss is pst, there are freaking reasons for that. Mm -hmm. There are reasons why we, for, for Gail Rubin, for example, she's mystified, completely flabbergasted by the idea that perverts aren't allowed in high office. She says, it seems like the higher the office, the higher the position in society, the less of a pervert you can be. You can't even wear your BDSM leathers to the office. Yeah. He's <laughs> mystified the, by the, this. The, the picture with the guy teaching and he's like, oh, I have ladies panties on. And, well, exactly. Know. Yeah. She's, and, she's 
openly mystified by the fact that, and, and I'm not kidding, there's an entire paragraph or two about, I think it's just one, specifically about this, that we are even stricter about controlling perverts around children, that we can take teacher licensure away because you do sexual misconduct with children. She's mystified by why this is the case. This is the first queer theory paper. I mean, groomer schools is, I mean, I, the, the episode I recorded yesterday, like I said, it'll be a few weeks before it comes out. So this will be a preview for people. She literally says, you know, that we, re, we need to rethink this. And I'm, I go through it and I say, look, you can say where she's like, here's where we're going to cut this chain. I put it out like a chain like fence, keeping the groomers out of the schools. It's like, we're going to cut this link. And we're going to cut that link. And we're going to cut that link. And here we are 36 years later or 38 years later. And we see what's happened by mm -hmm. cutting those links. And we have groomer schools is what's happened by cutting all these links. And the social constructivist is utterly mystified about why there would be norms and rules and expectations. They think that they're completely up for grabs. And in fact, they don't. That's not true. They well, think and, that and they're that, artificially... That's what, that's what queer theory is, just, just so we can... That's what Marxism is, but it's but, also but, what queer theory but is. But queer theory is a rejection of the norms or normal in general. They say that explicitly. Right. They literally yes. say, I, I wish I had it still open. I read in the same podcast, I didn't... I had a shorter section of the essay to read, so I actually read an article summarizing a professor something ward i forgot professor ward's first name but i put it on twitter and with tremendous amounts mm -hmm. of screenshots yesterday also so you probably saw it yeah professor ward explains that queer originally meant you know something to do with homosexual sex acts and by the 90s by the 1990s it stopped meaning that and it meant an assault on the normal it meant mm -hmm. anti-normal politicking and so that's correct queer theory is an assault on the normal and the thing is, this stuff's not arbitrary, and they don't even – I shouldn't even say it, though. They don't believe it's arbitrary. They believe it's artificially constructed by people with power in order to keep their power. Right. All of Marxism, all of queer theory, all of critical race theory, all of all of them is a conspiracy theory. Yeah. It, th there's no reason. They cannot fathom that there's a reason why perverts are something that we shield children from. They but don't I, I understand that there are reasons for this. I want, I want to touch on that for a second because I, you know, I have this, this concept of, I think it's probably named something else and I just renamed it or whatever, but of a preemptive narrative. And the all of critical race theory is, is saying that, okay, you have this, this society or heuristic called whiteness or hegemony called whiteness, and they say that that is all capitalism and it's designed to keep just these white people or the people in power. And that seemed to be a preemptive narrative to say, okay, we, we are going to say that so much that in order to get rid of it, it's thesis antithesis, right? I mean, yeah. in order to get rid of it, we have to then center, you know, what, what I put out yesterday, uh, the hella social uh, code, DEI code, this training program, that they have to center Black people, non-Black people of color, and Indigenous people, basically flipping the heuristic using discrimination. So it's like they, they use this huge preemptive narrative that, like you said, was a conspiracy theory, right? It's literally and, a and, conspiracy theory. Yeah, and and that did that named it's kind of like what they did with Jim Crow 2.0 it's like okay <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna institute systems of racial discrimination via anti-racist policies you know just like Kendi says you know discrimination is the only way to get rid of discrimination right we're gonna institute that via these policies and then call everything else 
Jim Crow one, you know, 2.0, whether yeah. that's, you know, and it seems to be this just flip. And I think if people would understand that, that it is this, this, all of critical race theory is this preemptive narrative designed to, to desensitize you to that, to what it is that they're actually doing when they're telling you what they're doing. They're flipping that heuristic, right? That's that, exactly that, right. Yeah. And it's to move margin to center and the, the way that they do it repeatedly. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to look for a picture, which is kind of difficult to find. I found it again the other day. I keep saving it and then yeah. I get sick of how many pictures I have on my freaking phone and I delete them. Like yesterday you. alone, I deleted over, uh, over a hundred. <laughs> it's like, yeah. damn it. And you that, still that got just 9, done the, or whatever. But it, no, <laughs> like, so my, yeah. my last flight home, I deleted 3000 <laughs> pictures that I'd saved on my phone from the freaking internet, um, and posted on Twitter or whatever. And so it was, when I say a hundred, that's how many I did yesterday. That's right, how many right. I saved or took a screenshot of yesterday. At the end of the day, <laughs> I was like, I'm cleaning these out. So, but no. Paulo Freire, for example, in his education book is extremely clear. He says the illiterate is framed out as the marginal man. He's been pushed to the margin of society. He used to be at the center of his society. And he has to be moved to the cent back. He's been pushed out to the margin. So now by becoming Marxist conscious, it has to be moved back to the center, right? And the reason, if you go back to whether it's in Freire, but more specifically in George Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist, most eloquent theorist of the 20s, wrote the exact same thing in history and class consciousness is that you have to move the, those that are marginalized by the so-called hegemonic power have to be moved back to the center. So they create these preemptive narratives, like you're saying. Um, and I'll show you what I wanted. I found the image. The reason I wanted to show you this image is because it's the, the wheel of power and privilege. And it has 12 different domains, wealth, language, gender, citizenship, skin color, formal education. I remember that's your Freirean <laughs> Marxist mm -hmm. model ability, sexuality, neurodiversity, mental health, body size, and housing, the wheel of power and privilege, right? And it has what's way out on the outside. We'll do wealth, for example, way on the out on the margin is poor. Then they have a middle section and it says middle class. And on the inside, it says rich, or we can do skin color. Dark is on the outside, marginalized. It literally says, um, differently skinned. Is that what it says? Differently, different shades is what it says in the middle. So there's your your brown race, and then right. white is in the center. But why is the goal to move from margin to center to find the marginalized and then center them? Yeah, right. I do a lot of close readings on their language. I'm probably the best person at it. I know this probably won't show up well, but we can actually I can send you the graphic. Well, you, yeah, send it to and me. And we I'll can embed it. it but I'm going to just yeah. show it to you. Like here's the wheel of power. Can you read what's in the very center of the wheel? Power. Power. Yeah, because the people at the center, and this is exactly what Lukács' um, Marxist theory was, power exists at the center of society because it's Marxist. So Marxism believes that you can't understand all Hegelian thought, actually, believes that you can't understand the parts without understanding the whole. But you can only see the whole when you're at the center. If yeah. you're at the margin, you're excluded from being able to see everything. So the goal is to take the margin, the outside, and move it to the middle. But the reason they want to move it to the middle is because that's where they believe power is. So mm -hmm. the goal when they say they're going to center blackness or they're going to mm -hmm. center queerness or they're going to center other ways of knowing mm -hmm. instead of formal education. There's your, you ever heard that other ways right. of knowing? Yes. You know, yeah. ways of knowing, that's what it is. Those are marginalized and we're going to move them to the center because what they're claiming is power.
They think that mm -hmm. power resides at the center. They draw it on their own graphics. You can embed the thing more clearly, but I wanted to show it to you. It says, you saw it yourself. I didn't tell you what yeah. the word in the middle is power. And so the people that are, you know, privileged, what privilege means is closer to power. Yeah. And then there's less privileged in the middle range, brown. They are closer to power than the margin, but they're not at power. They're excluded from power. And this is how they order the world. And this is how they think about the world. And this is the objective of their entire program, which mm -hmm. is we're going to center, center, center. And they tell you, all you have to do is look at that picture. And they're literally telling you that the word centering means power grab. Right. Well, and to center, power grab. and to center, you have to at this moment break federal law because the only thing you can do to center others at the ex is, is at the expense of any other identity group is to discriminate in policy, and that's that's, right. that's and you have to and that's I, I talk about this a lot, and I, I all of this comes from you, and 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 but you know my structure of it is is that anti racism, you got critical race theory, you've got. Uh, anti-racism, you got DEI that enforces that, but anti-racism is policy. Kendi defines it in terms of public policy. That's and, right. And when you put his discrimination model into public policy, that's literally Jim Crow 1.0. That's is literally, that is. he explicitly yeah. says it, page yeah. 19 of how to be an anti-racist, whichever edition. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. He explicitly says to be an anti-racist under my model is to willfully and intentionally discriminate, which means willfully and intentionally break federal law. And by right. the way, those, course, those court cases that have enabled this are starting to teeter. Yes. I have heard, although I don't know, that the decisions in like Backy versus the Board of Regents and mm -hmm. the decision in um, Grutter versus Bollinger are, especially with the Harvard case that's before yeah. with the Asian American discrimination, those are teetering now. Those yeah. may well be rethought or overruled and using race conscious hiring, which should violate Title VII or using or Title VI and Title VII, depending on its race or sex, sorry, mm -hmm. or using race conscious and sex conscious admissions, which would violate Title IX. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, the Biden administration is going full blast to try to protect it, but these things are in danger in the courts now, which are slowly rumbling into consciousness of what's going on with this deliberate power grab that we're seeing yeah. under this idea that that which is marginalized needs to be moved to the center. And like you said, Kendi explicitly says that the way we're going to do this is by discriminating. And that's good because systems of power or something we yeah. always make fun of kendy that he's a dumb man because he's a blatantly a dumb man yeah <laughs> but he somehow managed to repackage literally repackage yeah uh marx's revolutionary structure into the context of race in a way that nobody recognized mm -hmm. clearly for what it was it took me even a year and a half to figure it out after i was staring at it straight at its face by the way you see the same thing um, this is this is what they do. How do they do this, say, with queer theory? This is in that article, mm -hmm. Professor Ward. So the article she was talking about that, that somebody sent me that I put on Twitter is about this concept called homo flexibility. And I was delighted. This is an article from 2016. I was delighted to, 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 to have it sent to me because it turns out when we wrote those fake academic papers and we wrote the one about transphobia and that men could overcome their transphobia by practicing and others by putting <laughs> things in their butts um, we literally use the concept of heteroflex or homoflexibility 
no, sorry, heteroflexibility in order to do it. So here's what the queer theory model is, right? It's the war on the normal. Well, she's actually arguing, and it turns out there are books and books and books about this. Many papers about this. I wish I could remember some of the titles. They're hilarious. But there are all these ideas of basically straight men who actually have gay sex. And they almost always make it straight white men who have gay sex, right? There's tons of their literature and sexuality studies about the straight man who has gay sex. And rather than then say, well, this person's bisexual or bicurious and just being done with it like a normal mm -hmm. person would do, they say, no, this, they identify as heterosexual, which therefore apparently is valid. They're not in denial. They identify as, as heterosexual. So they are heterosexual, but in a more complicated way. So now they say that they want to, and this is their exact word, complicate the notion of heterosexuality to include certain modes of homosexuality. And they have pages and pages and pages of invoking Foucault and other nonsense in order to justify why they want to complicate the notion. But why do they really want to complicate the notion? Because if they complicate the notion of heterosexuality, then they, as the queer theorists, as the queers move to the center, that's the margin, it moves to the center, as the people who have the power to adjudicate when it's authentically heterosexual, when it's authentically bisexual, when it's authentically homosexual. What they're doing is creating a regime that makes no sense where they yeah. and their theories and the people that are authenticated by their theories get to decide what counts as what. Yeah. Heteroflexibility means some queer theorist gets to decide when your claim on being straight counts and when it doesn't because it might include some uh, homosexuality. So that means they have to – it sounds just funny and dumb until you realize that it literally appoints them as the people who get to decide. Just like Kendi gets to appoint the people who are going to decide what is racism and what is not and how are we going to bend every public policy and private corporation around his definition of racism if you read – his idea about a constitutional amendment, state, local, yes. federal policy, private company policy, public official ex expressions of public officials in both public and private life all have to be monitored for racism and must be punished in order to make sure that they stay on Kendi's anti-racist program. And that is what, what I what I what I constantly hit on is that his DOA he wrote about in Politico, which is what you're describing, right? His yeah. constitutional amendment where you're gonna have this fourth branch of government that eats all the other branches of government, is what DEI operates as in, in the institution that it goes into. That's right. That, it's exactly yeah, what it does. It, it 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 they are involved in every you know, and I went through this in, in one of my shows the other day, the the hella social Marxist code of DEI that th they have what they call take a buddy and every decision that's made in the organization must be done with a commissar that's behind you that approves your policy your your uh, you know sales tactic your um, pay increase or decrease from a you know race Marxist point of view that that does exactly what Kendi's DOA says that they're checking it for equity. They're checking yeah. it to make sure it's, and that's what I'm trying to get people under, because when they read that thing from Politico, every time I bring that up, you know, uh, people say, wow, that's amazing. We, you know, this, this is so dangerous to the federal government. And I just say, okay, now look at that DOA is DEI. Why are we letting that happen? You know, it's yeah. like, why are, and, and it happened here in the police department, you know, where it's like they got rid of all the police and then they immediately instituted a DEI office. And then just like you were saying earlier, and I'll tie this back together, like you were saying earlier, that the enforcement issue of the homeless problem, that's when it started. 
Yeah. Was, well, was because they course, stopped enforcing all the it. policing and all the new police that they hire are going to have to be DEI compliant with these commissars dictating what's equitable policy and what's not. The goal of DEI is equity. The mechanisms are so-called diversity and inclusion, which are hire appointees who understand the theory that's diversity and purge all ideas and people who don't represent the theory. Right. That's inclusion, which is literally a form of exclusion. This yeah. is literally the establishment of a commissary in order to achieve socialism branded as equity. And this is literally the Soviet model. When you talk about um, when you talk about the police department like that, where they get rid of they defund the police, then they install the DEI. Office. And they refund the police. And then they can then, oh no, look at all these problems we have. We have to rehire police, but now they're DEI compliant. That's literally called entryism. That's Leon Trotsky's program for how you take over an institution. You make it intolerable or whatever for some reason or another, or you defund it. You cut a bunch of people. You wait till the inevitable problems that were solved by or managed by that entity come around. But in the meantime, before you have a massive rehiring, because you end up needing those people, you change the policies so that the people that you bring in are always compliant. This is yeah. what they're doing in the in the um, police forces with defund the police. This is what they did with these extremism stand downs and the vaccine mandates in the military. Mm -hmm. They're doing Leon Trotskyite style entryism. They are bringing in compliant people and commissars to fill roles that used to be filled by people who would do the right thing. They're yeah changing over the personnel within the institution. And that happens at the university, that happens at the police, it happens in the military, happens in the corporation. And the people executing these maneuvers are your DEI officers and your ESG officers to make them compliant to the scam, to the racket, really. And it's literally a racket in, yeah. in, the, in the RICO sense, the literally it is racketeering. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. It's it extortion. And that's what I pointed out the other day, because this is the first DEI. It's it's a little episode I did. It's the first one I've done by myself where I'm just talking to a camera, right? But but it's like they go, they call it the Hella Social Impact Culture Code. And they put the word Hella in front of everything. But it one of the one of the slides that they put up is literally you have to let us do whatever we want. That's yeah. the title of one of the tracks of their mixtape, is what they call it. And and I've never that was seen very any... culturally responsive, by the way, that oh. they're calling it Hella and uh, mixtape yeah. and all of that. Yeah, it, I have it's, a paper it's... somewhere that's like that. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't know if no. it's somewhere on my desktop over here or my laptop. I should say I don't have a desktop. What am I talking yeah. about? But anyway, there's some paper Robin D'Angelo had a few number of years ago that's about the racial cray cray. Have you ever heard of that? I, I've I've heard the racial cray cray, but I didn't know it had anything to do with their health. Uh, they use things like that. No, it's know. just like yeah, they're using the slang terms or whatever. So Robin D'Angelo right. is very obviously, you know, hip and not racist and stuff because she's talking about white people having uh, racial cray cray. <laughs> Or actually, I think it's white neurosis, and it causes racial cray cray in other people. Or oh something. yes, okay, okay, yes, yeah, I, I've I've seen that because, and how is that not racist? It's like, you know, what I mean, just the very you know cultural appropriation, just like you had said. But it's it's amazing to me that anybody would hire that kind of company. You know, is that was so blatant? Your normal DEI offices. The ones that are in your university, especially in red states, in your companies, they they wrap it in more flowery. You know, we're all going to come together. You yeah. know, and, and that's and, what Joe and, Harris told me. Oh, you? He's like, we just. I, I laid out the whole thing about oh. EI to him in his office, and he stood me. He looked me right in the face and got the politician smile on, and he said, "We just want to create a campus where everybody belongs." 
I'm like, Joe, don't pull that crap with me. You know, I know what that word means. Right. Like, you know, right. it's just positive affirmation added into inclusion. Like mm -hmm. all you're doing is like throwing crap at me. Like, yeah. We're, we don't need to do that. And that um, works for so many, that uh, works for almost everybody around, you know, because you're weaponizing the empathy, right? You're yeah. weaponizing. Well, think about the one kid who's going to feel like a weirdo. Well, a lot of kids feel like weirdos and a lot of kids are weirdos and they could use getting knocked off of their pedestal a few times. So they'll be less weird. Right. I was weird in a lot of ways as I was growing up. I'm a little bit different, you know, and I mm -hmm. see the world differently and I get a little socially awkward for a long time. And it turns out getting knocked off your pedestal and getting back up, getting knocked off your pedestal and getting back up. I used to be uncomfortable. I didn't know really what to talk about. So I kind of talked about like myself a lot because it's something I was comfortable knowing about. So I only tried to talk about things I kind of know about. And so I had a friend, we were hanging out and I was telling some story about something that happened. And it was about me, of course, this is like mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. And he just did the whole little, like preparing to sing opera. Me, 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 oh, yeah. me, me. And I was like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and it's like, it right. stung hard. It knocked me right off my back. I spent like weeks thinking about it, like, dang, I do talk about myself a lot. And right. it, I needed to be knocked off my pedestal. Well, and that goes into just as a teacher, right? But also as a parent, right? Uh, my dad, my dad was a, a smart man. He he didn't graduate high school, but, you know, he didn't never went to college, but he, he, had, a, he had a lot of wisdom. And what he would say, you know, was, son, sometimes... You got to smack the kid's hand so they don't burn themselves on the stove. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. what I think we're missing in education by this constant affirmation, whether we're talking about queer theory and you have to affirm the, the way that they feel at that point. You know, you wouldn't let your eight-year-old, and this goes into, I think, the the queer um, uh, movement that you, you were talking about explaining was, you know, you wouldn't let your eight-year-old, say, get a full back tattoo of Mickey Mouse because they like Mickey Mouse right then, right? You wouldn't yeah. do that. But yet you're willing to inject them because they feel like they're a girl. You know, no, you say, hey, you may feel that way today, but you're probably going to feel that way. You're probably going to feel differently tomorrow. And if you don't, when you're 18, you do whatever you want. But that's smacking them down a little bit of saying, hey, here's a little bit of pain, a little bit of discomfort actually makes them better. You know, and that's what we're missing, I think, from education now, where it's we have to constantly through SEL, they've carpet bombed, you know, what you would focus on, you know, a kid who had grown up with bad circumstances or an anger problem, you would focus the SEL there. And that's why it became successful, right? But now they want to carpet bomb at the whole thing and then wrap this ideology around it and just say, we're going to affirm how you feel no matter what. And so by the time they're older, they don't they just end up touching the stove. You know what yeah, I mean? They, they never know not to touch no the stove. Clue. Yeah. That's the thing. Reality is the thing you run into when your beliefs are false. And so you do this, you do this long enough and bad things are going to come out as a result. Right. Like, I mean, the, the reality is going to catch up with you. It's always going to catch up with you because reality can't be, you cannot actually negotiate with reality. You can do things. You can, you can build a structure to create shelter. You can do a lot of different things. You can in, invent air conditioning to control the climate within the structure. All these different things can be done, but you can't negotiate with reality. Yeah. If the wind comes and knocks your house down or knocks out the power, you don't have air conditioning now, or you don't have a wall now or whatever you, you can't negotiate with it. You can't go out and ask the wind to stop blowing and expect it to stop blowing. It's just not going to. And the same is true that there are, are massive consequences to you. If you enable a drug user, 
things are going to go badly. They actually like, you're going to just watch them get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. What is fairly, fairly universally known is that if you want to get somebody off of an addiction, that you've got to let them hit rock bottom. If you go yeah. to Al-Anon meetings, for example, they will teach you how to not take it personally and allow somebody that you love to hit rock bottom because you know it's their only path out where they hit the point where they realize I have to make a change and that decision comes from themselves. Mm -hmm. There's nothing anybody can say. Same thing here. If you enable and enable and enable and enable all your, whether it's gender identity, whether it's like entitlement, whatever, whatever it happens to be social dysfunction, um, lack of discipline, et cetera. What you're going to do is you're setting this person up to have to run into a rock bottom, which is where reality catches up with you. And I'm, I, but it seems like that's what they want uh, they over do. the well, long term. That's what that's what they want is they want to create this society of, of children uh, that end up becoming adults that when, you know, when the economy crashes, when you're paying eight dollars a gallon for gas and, you know, you can't get, uh, you know, baby formula or you can't get bread. Well, what do you do? Then you encounter reality. Nobody cares about how you feel about it because everybody's going for the same loaf of bread. Right. And right. that seems like what they're what what the regime, if you want to call it, is is designing in the educational system. Right. So what I mean, they want is to get it just far enough to where that they can swoop in with the solution. So it's so bad that there's no other people have, have lost any idea that they can do anything else about it. And then they're going to swoop in with the solution. But every time in history, and I don't know that it'll happen this time, and I don't want to be dramatic, but every time in history when this has happened, the people that they broke on the way, they just kill them. They just get rid of them. Part of the solution, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll put you all on you know, whatever program. We're going to have a whole system, emergency powers. Maybe it's going to be a huge social credit, whatever it is. But the people that they broke to get there, they even laugh about it, are the ones that they, they have to liquidate those people because they're too broken to function in the system. And they only want a destabilized system until they control it. And then they want absolute stability. When they say that they want sustainability, it's obvious that they don't mean sustainability in terms of like reality. It means a sustainable regime that mm -hmm. they have complete control over. Why would you have a social credit system? Because then nobody can rise up. Why do you want to have absolute control over uh, the currency with all these kind of like fake tools that you can apply with? Because then it's completely predictable. It never has boom or bust. It never has any of the things that happen to cure the market bubbles that they tend to create through false beliefs, et cetera. Right. This is actually the whole program. So these people that they're breaking, they will then betray if and when they get power. They only want the contradictions to get bad enough to where people will turn and say, you're our only hope. Save yeah. us. Well, and and also, I, you, you when you talk about liquidation, you go back and and you know Stalin and they they would mass kill people, right? But mm -hmm. these were hard people that had gone through war. You know what yeah. I mean? The the suicide rates for for teenagers and young people right now are so, so high, and their lives are really good. I mean, when you talk about over the course of human history, right? Yeah, they, their lives are really good. What is going to happen? They won't need to do it themselves because that's right. Because the the no, they'll lock the, you the in the population your room and make will do it miserable, and yeah, right, that the people will do it themselves. You know, the, yeah. the regime doesn't need to do it because they'll just do it themselves, and that's yeah. that's they'll a, propagandize people into it, right? And that's with what the social SEL, credit profile that they built out of them from SEL. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's why well, giving SEL them so anti-coping skills. That's right. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. this is a complete disaster. Yeah, in in uh, in progress. Yeah, it, it's 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 difficult and uh i will say this and i know you got to go and and uh i, I tr i'm trying to keep you exactly the time that we we talked about but it, everything that 
that you're saying and have said for the last, James has been talking about this, and I just want to speak to my audience for a second. James has been talking about this since 2015. You know what I mean? I mean, really, when he first started digging into it, you know, and 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 invariably, and he's not a prophet. You know, he's, he's not a James is not a, a believer. He doesn't have a specific faith. But but there there are he has discernment. If I want to speak to my red state audience, to my religious audience, you know that that I'm hoping to have both. But there is there is discernment there, and he has been calling these things with increasing you know, uh, increasing accuracy over the course of all these years. And where we're going is exactly how he's describing it. And and all these tentacles, all these braided interests, all of the, you know, talking about homelessness and queer theory and CRT, it, if we we have to identify it, and we have to then have the courage to say, you know what, if my leaders aren't going to do the right thing, you know, even if they got a giant red R in front of their name, you know, going all the way, they, then they need to not be there. No matter how, you know, much money they bring into the state, no matter how much good they're doing in this area or that area, if they don't get this situation, the house is on fire, the school's on fire, just like James said, you know, and that is, I think, really where we're at. And I think going all the way back to the very beginning of where we started talking, the difference between Florida and Oklahoma is that, you know, it was purple, just purple enough to elect someone like Ron DeSantis, who just said, screw you guys, I'm done, you know, and I'm not going to let you, I, if I have to, as a Republican and do the, you know, this is the big no-no for, for Reagan era, Bush era Republicans, regulate business in a way that makes sure it doesn't take over the values of my state and its population and the, and what it is that is built off of, you know, there, there's, we have to start thinking differently. And, and I think that's why we brought James to Oklahoma. So he could visit with the leaders here so they could start thinking differently. And I think he had an impact, but we have a lot of more work to do. And, and I will say this, you need, everybody needs to go to new discourses Everybody needs to subscribe to his podcast at New Discourses. You can find him at New Discourses uh, on YouTube. Um, James is there. You uh, at Conceptual James at yeah. Conceptual James on Twitter. Any other things you want to plug where you're here? Well, um, no. I actually just want to remind these red leaders with the big red R, which stands for Republican Party, which is Party of Lincoln. Vivek Ramaswamy re reminds them of this a lot people need to start thinking of this you just mentioned that they still think it's oh we can't go after businesses blah 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 we can't regulate businesses we've got to have this kind of very you know neoliberal attitude um mm -hmm. which has become corrupted and has been stolen i'm going to remind those people so whoever it is that has the big red r by their name in big red states like oklahoma or idaho or whatever else or tennessee that might be listening what Abraham Lincoln said about these things. He said, and this is a very famous quote, I'm sure you know which one's coming, the mm -hmm. dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. This is so important for people to realize. You need to disenthrall yourself. 
the neoliberal apparatus that has been broadly what's been behind conservative thought and wisdom that the free market's going to solve every problem if we just let it. So we're not going to regulate business. We're just going to blanket lower taxes. We're just going to let the market run and all this. That is specifically the thing that the neo-communists figured out how to colonize. That is specifically the thing that the neo-communists figured out how to corrupt. You can't use the dogmas of a quiet past in this stormy present. You have to disenthrall yourself from that. You have to think about things differently. You have to understand the situation that we're in. I have practiced for 15, 16, 18, something like this. Here's a Taoist martial art now. We have one and only one principle. Go according to the situation. If you're going according to the situation that it was in 1986, you're going to get us killed. If you go according to the situation we find ourselves in 2022, you're going to start listening about this stuff about ESG and DEI, and you're going to start taking different courses. You don't even have to invent the wheel. Ron DeSantis is inventing the wheel, and you're behind. You need to catch up, but he's a great model. You can learn from that. You can see what would Ron DeSantis do in this situation? How is Ron DeSantis handling that? Oh, transparency bills, protect parents, parental rights, uh, anti-grooming bills, actually protecting people from you know, sports taking on corporations like Disney that are doing things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every state needs to be doing this. And this is a message of, of hope, ultimately, because Lincoln did save the union, as it turns yeah. out. Yeah. And we can save the union, too. We can do this. I think Dan Bongino just put out a podcast today, his 1776 episode, episode 1776, and it's, we can fix this. Yeah. We can fix this country. But it, it does require getting your head out of the past, which also means getting your head out of the past that the now very geriatric donor class is stuck in. They think that they know everything because they were very successful and good for them. And they were, and they did, but things have changed. And a lot of them, I've spoken with them, don't know what's going on right now. They don't have the slightest yeah. idea. So you have to do something different. So you can follow me at New Discourses. You can check out the podcast, the New Discourses podcast. I'm at Conceptual James on social media. That's how you find me. That's the stuff. Um, I've got a thing coming up in uh, like two weeks in Phoenix to cover the theology of Marxism. I know it's short notice to most of you. If you see this, won't make it to that, but the videos will come out online and we're going to lay out why Marxism operates literally as a religion. I want to lay out the dialectical faith of leftism and I'm, get you to understand how the left operates. It has an operating system that's completely different from yours. That's why you can't talk to them. That's why you can't operate as though they're operating in, in, in your domain. That's why the dogmas of a quiet past are insufficient to the stormy present that we have. And you have to understand that leftism has been running a completely different playbook for over a century that you just have ignored. And so that's coming up. If you can come, come. It's in Phoenix starting on June 9th, I believe. Um, it's on new discourses on the website, so you can go check that and make sure I didn't mess up the date. Okay. Uh, but if not, the videos will be there. That's the only thing to plug or promote. Buy race Marxism, understand critical race theory, I guess. That's, yes. That's yeah, something. well, and, and I just thank you for thank you for coming on and thank you for your trips to Oklahoma and to the 40 states across the country and for doing the the hard work on the ground and online that a lot of people have built their houses on and that it's a firm foundation in that way and 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 reaching out and including people like me who are doing our best to take our own hills and and i i just really appreciate that and i know there's a large community on the ground in this country that do appreciate that so we 
Thank you. Thank you, James. Yeah, I see them. I hear them and I appreciate them more than they appreciate me if that's possible. Because otherwise I'm a dude with a microphone and a keyboard that isn't changing anything. It only changes when other people are, as you said, occupying their hills and defending them. Uh, Whether that's the city of Norman, whether that's schools, whether that's children, your kids, whatever. Um, It only works if people actually do stuff. And I actually feel like I don't do that much. I say a lot. I don't do a lot. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's with my gratitude to those people that we should, I guess, wrap up. Yeah. All right. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you.